You are now listening to the May 2nd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, listeners. This is Brian from Heart and Soul. We present to you another installment of the continuing saga we call Story of Kings. Last time, we witnessed how Saul emerged as the first king of Israel. God commanded Samuel to pour oil on Saul, and he was anointed as king over the people of Israel. Subsequent to that, God's Spirit came upon Saul and he gallantly defeated the Ammonites, who had been tormenting Israel. With this, Saul completed the process of proving himself as king. Saul received cheers from the people and began to reign as king over Israel. Samuel the prophet reminded the people once again that raising a person as king in place of God was a great sin. Then he laid down his duty as a judge. Nonetheless, he continued to serve out his role as God's mediator as the prophet and chief priest of Israel. King Saul could not dwell too long in glory over defeating the Ammonites. A more powerful enemy was looming large, the Philistines. The reason why the people had sought a king over them was to have him protect them when other nations posed a threat. Just as Saul defeated the Ammonites, he had to get ready for battle to face the Philistines. From the age of the judges to the time of David, the Philistines were a source of constant threat to Israel and tormented the people of Israel time and time again. So, it would be worthwhile to take a look at what kind of people the Philistines were and where they came from. Amos chapter 9, verse 7 says Philistines came from a place called Kaphtar. Jeremiah chapter 47, verse 4 says the Philistines were the remnant of the coastland of Kaphtar. Kaphtar is actually an island in the Mediterranean Sea. Today it's called the island of Crete. The New Testament in the Bible also calls it the island of Crete. While Apostle Paul was on his way to Rome, he visited this island and built a church there. Then he called on Titus to be the teacher there. According to historians, in 1220 BC, the Dorians invaded the island of Crete, where the Philistines were living, and the Philistines ran away from the island. Some of those that escaped the island then settled on the southern plains of the adjacent coast along the land where Israel is today. These Philistines that escaped from their island continued their warring ways and plundered the surrounding region. They overtook the cities in the region, including the areas near Canaan. The Philistines, who came out of the island of Crete, then began settling near the region of Canaan. Philistine was also called Palestine at that time. 
It was inevitable for the Philistines and the Israelites, who lived in the same region, to clash and go into battles. Compared to Israel, the Philistines were a much more powerful nation. They had a well-trained army and wielded potent weapons made of iron. Even before King Saul defeated the Ammonites, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 16 articulates how God told Samuel that Saul would in fact defeat the Philistines. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 16, God says, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, and he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. Here, God clearly points out that Saul will defeat the Philistines and deliver his people from their hands. After Saul defeated the Ammonites and was acknowledged as king, the first thing he did was to raise an army in preparation for the inevitable battles with the Philistines. He kept 2,000 men at Gilgal, the capital, and 1,000 men at Gibeah, his hometown. However, the weapons of the Israelite army at that time were rather feeble compared to those of the Philistines. The Philistines were skilled at forging iron into steel weapons. In contrast, the army of Saul had one sack of swords and a spear to show for. While training 3,000 men in the army, Saul's son Jonathan took the first charge at the Philistines by attacking them. That incident led Saul to rally his men for battle from all over the land and the Israelites gathered at Gilgal. The Philistine army congregated at a place called Michmash and camped there. Their military presence appeared mighty and was overwhelming. They boasted 30,000 chariots, 6,000 cavalry, and countless numbers of infantry. When the Israelites saw the Philistine army, they were in shock and awe. They couldn't even think of fighting them. There were some Israelites who ran away to the far side of the Jordan River. King Saul became anxious about the predicament he and his army were in. Customary at that time was for the chief priests to seek God's will before a battle. Saul wanted to give a sacrifice in a hurry as he prepared for the battle with the Philistines. When the chief priest Samuel, who was to carry out the sacrifice, didn't arrive in time, Saul became very impatient and even more anxious. As Samuel ordered, Saul waited seven days. As each day passed, he saw his people and army dwindling to a smaller side, and he decided he couldn't wait any longer. In haste, Saul himself administered a burnt sacrifice, the job that was divinely designated for the chief priest. It was a blatant disobedience against God's word and a violation of God's law. It was a very grave sin that Saul committed against God. Yes, Saul was allowed to govern over the people as God's representative. However, in front of a perceived impending danger, instead of obeying God's word, he acted upon his own thoughts and judgment. Samuel witnessed this grave act 
and relate God's message to King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has anointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. There was a conflict between Saul and Samuel from that day forward. Saul ruled over the land as king, while Samuel acted according to God's word. Needless to say, King Saul's reign that seems to have just started was already moving into shaky ground. This concludes this week's episode of Story of Kings. Stay tuned for the next episode. We will continue to meditate on how Saul's kingship unfolded under the conflicted relationship between him and Samuel as he continued to disobey God by forgetting how God put him in this position in the first place. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, The Gentle King Grows Stronger and Stronger. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. Well, this morning we're back in our David series where we've been talking about an ordinary man who became an extraordinary king. And we're going to be in first, or rather, Second Samuel chapters 3 to 4. Uh, if you're just joining us, I want to catch you up to speed a little bit. Uh, so the story of David's life actually begins with the story of Saul, a, a king who was anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel, the king that would go and fight for his people. Uh, but he disobeyed God and quickly f- fell into a life of disobedience. And so God rejected him as king. And in 1 Samuel 16, what we find is, is that Samuel was sent to actually anoint David as the king of Israel. And he received the spirit, the spirit departed from Saul, and he becomes the man, except for the fact in the very next chapter, we find him going and fighting and defeating the giant Goliath for the people of Israel. And the women, they sang about the greatness of David and the greatness of Saul. You'll remember Saul is the one who killed his thousands. Oh, and they should have stopped there, but they continued and they said, and David David has killed his tens of thousands. And it was really from that point forward that we find for the next three decades, David is running for his life from Saul to the very end of 1 Samuel. When you pick up in 2 Samuel, what we discover is, is that it is transitioning into the reign of David. And it is a chaotic situation. In fact, you probably noticed that as you read, listened to uh, being read 2 Samuel 3 to 4. You're probably reading that and going, man, this sounds like a mess. Is there really anything for us in this? But I don't believe God wastes words. I believe he has something important for us here. So as we think about this, we know that there's a transition that's happening. David in the first chapter of 2 Samuel is mourning and grieving the death of Saul and Jonathan, his dearest friend. Now David doesn't immediately take the throne of all of Israel because of the chaos that is everywhere. Men are seeking to take or use the throne for personal interest rather than God's glory. Now I know that we have some people here who work in politics and so as you're reading 2 Samuel 3 to 4, you might sound, say, this sounds like a normal day at the office. I mean, this is the kind of chaos that I see uh, every day. People looking to pursue their selfish interest over the interest of others. And that's exactly what's happening in the days of David. Now, Saul's chief commander, I want to introduce you to some main characters that you need to know as we move through the story. Saul's chief commander was Abner. And Abner is the guy that I think would call himself the king maker, a mighty warrior who, if he put his stamp on you, you were going to lead and people were going to follow. He was the power behind the crown. And he rejected in 2 Samuel 2, David as king when Saul died. Instead, he put Ishbosheth in power over Israel. Now, Ishbosheth, his name seems to mean something like man of Baal or man of shame. Uh, But as you follow him and as you look at him, what you're going to see in this brief portrait of him is he is a picture of weakness. He's a coward. He doesn't act. He's passive. If you're thinking about what kind of character does he look like, he looks a lot more like Napoleon Dynamite than Napoleon Bonaparte, right? I mean, this is a guy who is not a stand-up guy. He's not the guy that anybody wants to follow. But what we find here is that David's chief commander, Joab, is a man of war as well. In fact, he should have made the top of David's list of mighty men, but he did not, did not make it because he was a violent, double-minded man. We see that throughout the rest of 2 Samuel. He's not 
fully devoted to the work of God, and he is seeking vengeance himself at all costs at every point. Now, in 2 Samuel 2, where we, we should pick up, but we skip, we find that Abner led Team Saul against Team Joab, or Team David, and Team David routed them in 2 Samuel 2. And it was so bad that Abner is running for his life. He looks back and he sees Asahel, who is Joab's brother. Now, this is a fascinating scene if you read it. But as he's running, he's, I guess, talking back to Asahel, Abner is, and he's saying, please stop running after me or I'll have to kill you. And this guy's quick and he keeps coming. He's like, no, I'm serious. I'm not scared of you, but your brother Joab is a bad dude and I don't want to mess with you. But he keeps following him and he ends up dying. And as a result, we find that Abner has killed Asahel, but he does it in war. And so if he was to go to any Levitical court, he probably would have been found innocent of killing him. But it signaled a blood feud for Abner and his brother Abishai, or rather Joab and his brother Abishai for killing Asahel. Now that sets the backdrop, this story that's happening between the house of David and the house of Saul. There's also this blood feud that's going on in the middle of our text this morning. Now, 2 Samuel 3.1 tells us what I think the main point of these two chapters is, that David, you'll notice, he grew stronger and stronger as the house of Saul, Ishabeth, grew weaker and weaker. In fact, we find now that David is safe in Hebron. He gives birth to six sons with six different women. Now, we'll talk about David's many wives on another day, okay? You'll just have to hang in for that. For now, just take note that each of these wives represents a kind of political alliance and power, and each of these children, they represent a legacy of sons that will come after him. In fact, if you think about it, King Saul had three sons that are mentioned, David has six right off the bat, and he's not even done yet. And so David is seen as a great king who is growing in, in power. Now, what we find here is that in the midst of this, a long war between David's house and Saul's ensues. Now, the big thing that we're going to see this morning, the big idea, if you're writing notes, you can write this down, is that God unites his people around his increasingly strong yet gentle king. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. Now, first, you'll notice the kingmaker made himself strong in verses 6 to 11. Now, David grew stronger and stronger. Verse 6 tells us, as that was happening, there was something else happening in the house of Saul. Abner was making himself strong in Saul's house. He's the power behind the crown. King Ishbosheth charges him with sleeping with Saul's concubine Ritzbah in verse 7. Well, I think there's something more significant that's happening here. If that happened, that would likely signal a major political move where this man, Abner, would be actually acting as a king and maybe even claiming to be a king, not just the king maker. Now, we don't really know from this text if Abner did it or not. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but that's not really what seems to be significant here. What's significant is the way that he responds whenever Ishbosheth challenges him. And look what he says in verses 8 to 10. Here's Abner's response to him. He says this Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman? God, do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him. 
to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Did you catch that? Very interesting statement, I think, that tells us a lot about the nature of the heart of this kingmaker. See, Abner suffers from an inflated view of himself. I think that's what we see here. He sees himself as he is very great in his eyes, and God seems to be very small. The promises of God and fulfilling those, those are secondary to the anger of the moment. See, Abner says, all I've done is serve your house faithfully. Day after day, I go to work and you reap the benefits. And the only thing protecting you, Ishbosheth, from David is who? Manyata, me, nobody else. And you blame me for taking the king's woman? And who even cares if it's true? Maybe, I don't know. But who are you to question me? Do you know who I am? Who are you as king to judge me? I mean, do you hear the irony of that statement? That doesn't go well, right? Well, that's the same kind of foolery that we see here. Who is this kingmaker to actually intimidate the king and ask him whether or not he has the right to ask him a question? Tell you what, Rochelle says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn he would do for him, and I will hand the whole kingdom from Dan to Beersheba over to him with a nice little bow on top. See, I'm going to build David his throne just like I built you a throne. He has a low view of God. And you could see that Abner exaggerates his strength too. In fact, he says, I'm going to give you from Dan to Beersheba. Hey, did you know that like David already has Beersheba? And so he's expanding his influence and saying, look how great I am. And isn't that kind of the way that our hearts tend to work? Don't we tend to sort of like overgrasp like our influence and our importance and we think much more of ourselves in our heads than we think of others, much less of others than we think of ourselves. That's exactly the kind of thing that we have here with Abner on display. Now, How can he give David what David already has? Well, the author of Samuel wants us to see that Abner sees himself as great and God is small. You see this throughout. Abner's not super concerned with the promises of God. Remember, he's already known that God swore this to David. But what he's concerned about is which king offers him the best benefits. He's not concerned with building the house of Saul. He's building his own house in the house of Saul. He's kind of into the duplex. You know what I'm saying? He's like, yeah, I like this house as long as I can build my house inside this house and it helps me make my house better. Abner's concerned with building his own house. And did you catch Ishbosheth's response to Abner in verse 11? Here's the king coming back to his commander says that he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Don't miss this. Neither Abner nor Ishbosheth feared Yahweh. Did you catch that? Both of them fear something other than Yahweh. Neither of them fears Yahweh, the Lord, and both of them look drastically different for the fact that God is invisible before their eyes. See, both rejected God's king because they rejected God. It made Abner exaggerate his strength and Ishbosheth looks so weak. Do you see it? One is like flexing and the other is cowering and both responses are because they do not see Yahweh. See, I think that when God disappears or looks small before your eyes, it can look way different in a lot of different ways in the way that you respond and live your everyday life. And none of them are meaningful or flourishing in the way that God has created you to live. You live your best life when Jesus is king. They had lost sight of God's Messiah. See, a lack of confidence in God and an inflated confidence in self 
results in these men's lives. The result of man being great and God being small in your life, it can take on all kinds of manifestations that are less than the humanity that we were made for. But second, notice this. David, catch his response to this man who has been an enemy, Abner, to him in verses 12, 25. We find that David prepared a feast for his enemy. As Abner is going to come to David, he is going to prepare a feast for his enemy. The kingmaker does what he says he's going to do. He goes to David and he promises to make David king. Now, we don't have much time to linger here, but Abner, he goes straight to David and promises to hand him the kingdom if David would just make a covenant with him. If he made a covenant, he's seen David make covenants and keep his promises. Uh, He's seen it for decades. Like, this is a guy who keeps his word. If he makes a covenant with him, then he's going to hand him the kingdom. And notice verse 12 shows that Abner still thinks a lot of himself. He's still talking a really big bang. Did you notice what he says there? Verse 12, he says, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all of Israel to you. You remember God promised to do this? I'll do it. I can do it. I've got the power. I've got the influence. See, Abner speaks as though he is king. I mean, what kind of second fiddle or vice president can make this kind of power move? This this man sees himself as king in his own eyes. David agrees to terms if Abner will simply bring Michal to him. Do you remember Michal? That's Saul's daughter that David went out and uh, he took a number of foreskins of the Philistines to, as a bridal price because Saul had asked for them and so she was given to his wife. And Saul took his wife, Michal, from him later and gave him to another man, Paltiel. And David says, hey, I just want my wife back. If you bring her back to me, then it'll seal the deal. So David, here, remember, he's growing stronger and stronger See, having Saul's daughter as a wife would go a long way in uniting the kingdom of God as he had promised to do with David. And so, Michal means a, it signals a, a stronger political positioning for David. So Abner agreed. David sent messengers to Ishbosheth demanding his wife in verse 15. And Ishbosheth says, that's what Ishbosheth kind of always does. Yes, sir. Doesn't sound like a king. He just hands his sister over as her husband weeps behind her. Now, Levitical law said that you can't take back a wife once you've divorced her, but there's no wrong that's given to David here. It seems like David assumes that he never divorced her and that he still has a right to her. And so he sees her as his wife and takes her. Now, Abner proceeds to convince Israel and his tribe Benjamin to come over to team David. Now, don't forget this. Abner has pursued David and his life for decades. He's led the charge. He likely saw and heard of Saul's plans to murder David. He probably saw David narrowly escape time after time. And how does David receive him in verse 20, this man who has constantly sought his life? Verse 20 says this, When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Just a window into the nature of David, this king, this Messiah. See, David welcomed his enemy with open arms. He prepared a feast. His whole army, his enemies. And what a picture of foreshadowing of the forgiveness that we have in Christ with God. I mean, David is just a picture of the greater Christ to come. Jesus, 
And he came and dined with sinners. Jesus did. He lived with them so much that many were asking, why is Jesus hanging with people like this? And yet he lived with them, ate with them, taught with them, died for them, defeated sin, death, and the devil through his death on the cross for them and was raised as the victorious king to deliver all those who repent and believe from the just wrath of God so that amongst other things, hang with me, we might join him at the marriage feast of the Lamb on the last day. Do you catch that? Part of the promise of the gospel is an amazing party. And that's exactly the thing that we see here in David. He is showing that he is welcoming this man to his table as not an enemy, but as a friend. Same kind of picture I think we see of Revelation 19.7-9 where we as enemies who have been washed in the blood of Christ are invited to come to the marriage feast of the land and join in heavenly celebration with Christ our King. David says, I will gather all Israel to my Lord the King that they may make a covenant with you and you may reign over all your heart desires. This is what Abner has done. Now the irony is clear. Abner trusted in his political savviness to make himself strong. Pride comes before the fall, doesn't it? And I can't tell you how many times in real time I saw my life experience destruction because of pride, and I was like, man, the Bible's right. Well, here we find Abner experiencing this in real time. His pride, his hubris, it came before his mighty fall. In fact, we find that he dies like this same day. One day he thinks he's going to be next to the great king that has been promised all of the nations. And the next moment, he's planning a funeral. I think this is a message for all of us as we look at Abner. You know, husbands, as we look at Abner, we should see ourselves. Let me just encourage you. If you're a husband, be careful when your marriage is in a good place. When you think it's in a good spot. Be careful that you don't forget that you are desperately in need of washing both yourself and your wife in God's word, and desperately in need of training your kids to walk in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You know how easy it is on vacation just to like get chill and think, I think this is going to last forever, and forget the word of God. Forget your desperation for Jesus on vacation. Be careful about what you look at on your computer. When you're thinking to yourself, no one sees what my eyes see right now. And you think if I get away with it and I hide it and I cover my trail enough and nobody ever knows, then there are no consequences and there's no justice and no one sees and Jesus sees. Jesus sees all things. Now maybe in the pride of your heart, you're thinking God's not going to ever bring justice. He always brings justice. And the next thing you know, something goes wrong and you don't want to say, did you see what I did? Right? The Lord's bringing humility to your life. Pride always goes before the fall. Maybe you're single and dating and you're thinking to yourself that you can skimp on faithfulness to Jesus in your relationship and that, you know, soon if we get married, it's all going to get covered up. Not a big deal. And yet we know that God is always just and he always sees. And I want you to remember with Abner that you can go from being a kingmaker in a day to planning a funeral that night. That's the nature of what the fall looks like. God, he always sees. He always plans. He always brings about justice. But don't miss this, God is also good, and God is patient, and God is just, and God created us for His glory. And even more, don't miss this, not living for God's glory above our glory, it actually diminishes the glory that we were made for. So what I'm saying today is, don't like 
settle for lesser glories because you might get punished. I'm saying don't, less, don't settle for lesser glories because you were made for much more glory than that. You were made for the glory of God. And it's not safe not to live what you were made for, the glory of God. We were made for so much more than enjoying our own glory and our names be made great. And I cover my trail enough and nobody ever knows that there are no consequences and there's no justice and no one sees and Jesus sees. Jesus sees all things. In and of ourselves, we were made to make much of the name of Christ. We were made for the glory of an infinite God eternally, not the glory of finite man whose life can disappear in a day. Third, notice what we find in Joab. Joab is violent and David is gentle. Joab is David's chief commander. The next verses tell us Abner left in peace three times in different ways. It's highlighting that peace was the situation when Joab shows up. Peace had been brought to the Middle East, and yet Joab shows up. It's interesting that as you read there in verses 26 to 39, it almost feels like just as Joab is pulling in, we find Abner pulling out. They don't see each other, and so they begin to tell Joab what's going on, and when he hears, he's not having it. He has this blood feud because he had killed his brother in war, and Joab, he seems to be fully devoted to David, but sometimes, sometimes he killed people when David didn't want him to. That happens throughout. He's kind of a bad guy. You know, you never want a friend that, like, you know, sometimes accidentally or out of anger just kills people you don't being killed, but that's Joab. See, David wanted forgiveness as the king. He wanted reconciliation. He wanted peace. But Joab wanted blood. See, Joab, he goes around David's back and kills Abner by stabbing him in the stomach, a theme that we see throughout. And it seems like his brother Abishai and others helped him. They're guilty of innocent blood against Levitical law. David sought peace. Joab sought war. Joab did not fear God. Joab looks a lot like Abner. He doesn't just trust himself. He trusts his sword. Now, Joab's fighting almost compromised the peace David ushered in. And Samuel, he wants us, as he writes, to revel in this letter, to revel in the God who saves without sword or spear. That's what this book is really trying to show us, that God is the one who brings victory. Not the weapons of humanity, but the goodness of God is what saves. Now, catch how David responds as a representative of his God. He does this in four ways, four responses. Uh, notice first that David curses Joab according to the Torah, to God's law. He does that in verses 28 to 29. So David curses Joab's house. Uh, look there what he says. It's a pretty harsh curse, but he says these things. He says, afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner, Verse 29, may it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all of his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who is discharged or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. And so he cursed him, his chief commander, for this action. And Joab killing what may be perceived as an enemy at that. David is a covenant keeper and he's made a covenant with Abner. So David is actually cursing Joab and Abishai and their house, the blood guilt, claiming innocence for himself as king and his people. These curses that are listed here are straight out of the law. Now you might be thinking to yourself, why does David do this? Well, it's because the good king fears God. He keeps God's law. He obeys God. He instructs his people in righteousness because he fears Yahweh. He has a respect and awe 
for Yahweh. But not only that, notice second that David mourns Abner in verses 31 to 32. See, David then orders Joab and his whole crew, whoever was involved, he says, I want you to tear your clothes and I want you to get ready to mourn because we're about to have a funeral. And as they lead the body of Abner towards his grave, you're going to be following behind weeping and mourning. Let's go. Start weeping. Now you can imagine that Joab is pretty ticked at this point. Like he doesn't have any sad feelings. I mean, maybe tears of joy, but not tears of sadness for this guy. And yet he obeys the king and they follow behind mourning the death of Abner publicly honoring him in the shameful death that Joab brought about. In fact, David sings a lament over Abner. You remember David's a musician, and he's already sung one lament in chapter 1 over Jonathan and Saul, and here he, he writes one for Abner. See, this had to be an awkward moment for Joab. Now the king's singing about this guy. He's getting more honor in death than he got in life. And David says in his lament, should Abner die as a fool dies? That was like Nabal, but not this guy. He's a good warrior. Your hands were not bound. I didn't bind you. This wasn't an act of the state. Your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And I can imagine David looking at Joab at this point. Because who is the wicked? It's Joab. He's there fake mourning in front of this guy. See, Joab is the wicked man who killed Abner. But fourth, notice that David fasted for the whole day in verse 35. You know, so much of this sounds like how David was responding to Saul and Jonathan, that man that he, Jonathan, the one that he loved even more than the love of a woman. But did you catch how the people responded in verse 36? It says, and all the people took notice of it. All the people, Israel and Judah, everyone there, they're taking notice of the way that this king is responding to this death. They're learning as they're watching him. They're saying, what does this tell us about this king? He's different. Catch what it says in verse 36. Please them to see a king with a heart like this. And then it goes on to say, it's everything the king did pleased all the people. This was a good king. This is not like Saul. This is not like scary, crazy Saul. This is a good king who seeks to bring justice and order and is fair. David first notes that here in these verses, we find the first time that the author of this book actually refers to David as king. He does it himself for the first time. He's been called king, referred to as king by others or quotes, but here the author calls him king and he continually does so five more times in the verses that follow. Now this is the moment where David becomes king, leading his people in mourning the death of a national hero, bringing the nation together. Israel and Judah recognize together David as their king. A couple of things are interesting here. First, did you notice that David doesn't kill Joab? Seems kind of like the thing that's happening these days. But he doesn't kill Joab. 1 Kings 2, we find that David actually leaves that to Solomon. And this is one of the things that he lists. He's so tough to others, but shows mercy to Joab. And Joab keeps being Joab throughout the rest of the book. I think this really foreshadows Joab's future actions and where they lead. See, David doesn't actually ever deal with Joab, but he gets dealt with. There's a second thing I think that's striking about this section here. Joab acts as a foil for the character that drew people to David. Did you see that? All the people were pleased by David. Why? Well, look at verse 39. I think that explains. It says, and I was gentle today. This is David, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruah, being the guys who just killed Abner, Joab and Abishai, these guys, their sons 
are more severe than I. They're hard. I'm gentle. And the Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. See, Joab is violent, but David is not. David is gentle. The spirit, catch this, it's beautiful. The spirit that empowered David to be king empowered him to be a gentle king. Do you see it? That's important. Like some of us think gentle is weak. Here we see a king who is empowered by the omnipotent Holy Spirit to be gentle over his people. He did not seek to take power with sword and spear, but in the power of the Lord and in obedience to his word. That was the strength of David. He was righteous, innocent, a gentle king, but he was fierce too. He also fought giants. Now if you mistake gentle for weak, chapter 4 is not going to make a lot of sense. See, fourth, David doesn't overlook sin in 2 Samuel 4. Now this story concludes with the death of Ishbosheth, the puppet king. Now you'll remember that he trusted Abner to make him king even against God's promise to David. And Abner died before he was able to hand the kingdom to David. Benah and Rechab were actually commanders under Abner. So they were like sort of vice commanders. And when they hear that Abner's dead, they say, you know what, this sounds like a good opportunity maybe to like switch teams. This isn't going well. And maybe we could even like work in a promotion here. Here's the deal. Let's just go in and kill Ishbosheth. And they do. They, they sneak into his house. They stab him in the stomach. Sound familiar? They cut off his head. Sound familiar? And then they carry the head all the way to King David without anybody noticing. And we find that as they come up to David, they approach him, expecting a reward for avenging the king against Saul and his offspring. I guess they hadn't heard about what David did to the Amalekite in chapter 1. But David responds to them in verse 9. And here's what he says in chapter 4, verse 9. This is what David says to these men who have brought them the head of Ishbosheth. He says this, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. I didn't have to lift a spear or a sword. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news. Maybe you haven't heard this story. I think you'll know where it's going. I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. Now, I'm thinking at that time, they're like recalculating. This might not work out the same as we thought. And he goes on to say, verse 11, How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, the place that David has come to bring peace to, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the face of the earth? I don't think that was exactly what they were looking for when they killed Ishbosheth. Now, I want to ask you this question, though. Does David look weak here? David looks fierce. But did you catch why he's fierce? They are guilty before God of blood guilt, and his kingdom will not be characterized by people biting and devouring and killing one another for selfish gain. The kingdom should be characterized by self-sacrificial love and submission to the king. See, David did not overlook their sins or let blood guilt remain. David did not need to take the crown by sword or spear. And God would empower his gentle king, this gentle king, to dispel the wall of hostility that existed between Israel and Judah to create one new man and peace and the kingdom of God. David trusted God to do it. See, this section began with Ishbosheth and Abner conspiring to kill God's king. And did you notice that it ends with the two being buried together? That was the end of them trying to reject God's king. Both fell as David loved and strummed his lyre and sang, but never lifted sword or spear. I like actually rhymed. I didn't even realize that when I wrote it. But that's exactly what David's doing all the while. 
He's trusting God to do what God has said he's going to do. And he watches one by one as God fulfills his promises. God would empower him to do so, and he trusted it. See, this section, it shows us the power of God. God brought about the victory, and God got all of the glory, and that is the purpose of God, to show his people his goodness and make much of his name amongst them. Jesus came to calm not just the enmity that we had with, the enmity that we had with God, but our hostility with one another. I love what Ephesians 2, 12 to 16 says. He says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, from God's king. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. And with God in the world, that was me. That was you. You were hopeless even if you didn't know it. But now, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, further than you knew, have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. And for he himself is our peace. So let me just give you a few words in gentleness as we close. First, Jesus is gentle. He's gentle. You have a gentle Savior. He is omnipotent and gentle. Notice in Matthew 11, 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? I'm gentle. I'm lowly of heart. I'm humble. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He came to take on the burden of our guilt before God. How do we come before a king when we are living under the curse? Jesus came to lift us out of the curse. That's the burden of guilt and the law that he carried us from. But not only that, second, we need the spirit of Christ to make us gentle. It's not just hard to be gentle and you don't just need to be strong. I think it's actually impossible to be gentle without God. See, we are too weak to be gentle on our own. That's why Galatians 5.23 says that gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. That we are not gentle as we should be. It's a spiritual war. But he says gentleness is wisdom from above. So we need the power from above and the wisdom from above to be able to love others here in our daily lives. 1 Peter 3.15 says, be gentle with your enemies. Anybody just like really good at being gentle with your enemies? Like I need constantly to pray to God. Like help me be gentle. When we lose sight, of the greatness and the goodness and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus, which we need to be reminded of every day and daily and and multiple times, we will become harsh. If you're leaving in sin, gentleness will erode and you will start sharpening that sword. But the more that you see you have peace with God in Christ, the more that you will see that you can trust God to bring uh, bring about his purposes as you seek to be faithful. Third, we need to be gentle and brave when we help brothers and sisters in Christ who are falling into sin. This is what the New Testament tells us about gentleness. We need to be gentle when we're helping those who are falling into sin. When I'm falling in sin, I don't need somebody to come slap me upside the head. Like maybe I do sometimes if I'm not repenting, but like it'd be nice just to have a gentle somebody come alongside and say, hey, did you know you're sinning? Can I help you? Can I lead you out of this? That's exactly what Paul says in Galatians 6.1. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. But he doesn't stop there. He says, in a spirit of gentleness. Just 
Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries has the opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing the broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is Praying for the Next Generation. Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I'm the host of this program, Praying for the Next Generation. Today, I would like to start with Romans chapter 15, verse 13, which says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We serve the God who is the author of eternal hope. The Greek noun for hope is elpis, which means trust faith, confident expectation of what is certain, and solid assurance. The primary understanding of hope is derived from the Old Testament, where hope is synonymous with trust. To hope in the Lord is to trust in the Lord. Hope also has to do with the unseen and the future. Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25 says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Hope in this verse describes the happy anticipation of good toward the future. The scripture reading is from Psalm 130, verses 5 through 7. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in His word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness and with Him is abundant redemption. Let's praise God who is our only hope and our confident expectation. God, we worship You in awe before Your majesty in the beauty of holiness as we put our hope confidently in Your compassion, loving kindness, and abundant redemption. You alone are our radiant hope. As we trust you with all our hearts, we rejoice with an uncontainable joy and perfect peace flowing from your eternal hope. Amen. Psalm 32 verse 5 says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. 
Let's acknowledge our sins and confess them with a repentant heart. Lord, we cry out to you out of the depths of despair. Hear our desperate cry and humble prayer. God, if you kept a record of our sins, who could stand before you? But your forgiving love is so amazing. This is why we wait upon you, expecting mighty breakthrough, for your living word brings us great hope. Amen. Psalm 77 verses 11 and 12 says, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. The Hebrew word for remember is jakar, which means make mention of, recount, be mindful, recall, and remember usually as affecting present feeling, thought, or action. As we give God our thanksgiving, let's recall all the mighty works Jesus has done and make them known among the nations. Lord, we are forever grateful for your extravagant mercy. Thank you for saving us and giving us new life. We are reborn to experience the greatest hope of eternal life and a perfect relationship with you through the mighty power that was released when you are raised from the dead and exalted to the place of highest honor and supreme authority in the heavenly realm. Lord, thank you for leading us into a place of radical grace where we are able to celebrate the hope of experiencing your glory every day. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 18 and 19 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might. Suicide is the second leading cause of death between the ages 10 and 34. This world has no answer or hope to save this generation from death and destruction. But we do because our God is the only answer. It's a very critical time to unite our hearts and fervently cry out for the next generation as an army of God with a most powerful weapon to war in intercession, His living word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you humbly and fervently cry out for the next generation. We pray that the eyes of their hearts will be flooded with light by your Holy Spirit until they experience the full revelation of the hope of your calling. Lord, reveal to them the glorious riches you are preparing as their inheritance 
and let them continually experience the immeasurable greatness of your power made available to them through faith. Father, deliver this generation from all thoughts of suicide, depression, isolation, hopelessness, and despair by the power of your precious blood and fill them with your overflowing hope that comes from knowing your truth and living in the life of your Holy Spirit. Fill them with divine hunger to love your truth and your divine wisdom so they will meditate and firmly stand on your promises for your eternal word is their hope and confidence. God, deliver this emerging generation from the evil one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and from all of his evil schemes to attack these future leaders of the nations. We declare your living promise with confidence. No weapon formed against them will succeed. Father, silence every voice that rises up to condemn them. You are our mighty God. There is no one like you. You are the Lord of heaven's hosts and invincible commander of all the armies of heaven. You are the Lord of victory, armed and ready for battle. This battle belongs to you. So we declare with confident expectation that we will see a mighty deliverance and great victory over this generation. Lord, raise up this generation in your holiness, righteousness, and truth by the power of your Holy Spirit and bless them to live as pure children of God, shining lights of your overflowing hope and great power in this world. In your holy name we pray. Amen.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.